Welcome to the public rally. Cancel culture, loosely defined, refers to the practice of withdrawing support for public figures and companies after they've done or said something considered objectionable or offensive. Cancel culture is generally discussed as being performed on social media in the form of group shaming. Because it is a subjective process, it can bear no definitive definition, it does run the risk of going too far in its pursuits. Does removing the Jefferson Memorial in Washington, D.C. because of Thomas Jefferson owned slaves the equivalent to having Confederate General and the inaugural Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, Nathan Bedford Forrest, removed from being buried on public lands? How about books? Is the removal of Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf the same as banning Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn? And who gets to decide? I'm joined by Jonathan Rausch, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, a contributing writer for The Atlantic, and author of numerous books, including Kindly Inquisitors, New Attacks on Free Thought. Jonathan Rausch, welcome to The Public Morality. Happy to be here. Thank you, Byron. Uh, you know, there's a tendency in, in the public discourse to oversimplify issues, and, and in this case, cancel culture could be anything from taking down the Confederate monuments to, to on one end to banning books. And for the purposes of this conversation, um, how would you define your area of concern? Well, first thing to say is I'm all for criticism. I wrote a whole book called Kindly Inquisitors defending the importance of criticism to discovering knowledge, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it makes people feel in some cases unsafe or offended. And so canceling has to be something different from criticism because criticism is something we just need to learn to expect. And, and I think it is. So cancel culture is, is not new. It's been around for a long time, but it's been turbocharged by the internet. And I think it has really kind of six characteristics. I don't know if you want to walk through them all, yeah, but let's, let's the most important ahead. one, well, the most important one is that it, it comes from the realm of propaganda, not criticism, because it's not about looking for the right answer and evaluating ideas. It's about trying to punish certain people, trying to shape the media environment or the social environment so that you can isolate or deplatform or punish someone who's on the other side ideologically. And that's more like what propaganda is out to do, to shape the information environment to your own political advantage. And that's what canceling is out to do. So there's some things that, that I think are, I wrote a piece called the Cancel Culture Checklist recently, and it goes through six things that I think, you know, they're, you don't see them all, all the time, but they're kind of like diagnostic tests. The more of them you see, the more certain you can be that canceling is going on. Um, Number one, deplatforming. Are campaigners trying to prevent you from publishing or speaking or attending meetings, that kind of thing? Second, is it organized and targeted as opposed to just you know regular people going about the business of saying what they think? So are you being swarmed, brigaded, or people hunting through your work, you know, everything you've ever written to find ammunition? Another one, a really big one, is secondary boycotts. And that's where you basically try to make someone radioactive so that they won't hire you, they don't want to associate with you, they feel like they need to denounce you or they'll be unsafe because with the secondary boycott, you know, if you're not on board and denouncing the person, then you can get targeted yourself. That was a, 
a key element of McCarthyism back in the 50s, and, and that has no place in, in critical exchange, which is about ideas and, and not trying to isolate people, make them pariahs. Another one is moral grandstanding. That's when the tone is ad hominem and repetitive and ritual. Competing with each other to see who can sound the most outraged. That's an element of canceling, not criticism. And the last one, maybe the to me the most important, um, is do people are actually care about the truth of what they're saying? Because in a lot of cancel campaigns, is, is people say all kinds of things about you that are inaccurate. They don't even bother to read what you wrote that they're supposedly complaining about. They just know you're a bad person. And they're going to say whatever it takes to take you down. Well, in real criticism, you have to care about being truthful and accurate. And if you're caught out and you say something about I don't know Byron Williams and it's just wrong, you're supposed to I'm sorry, I got that wrong. And if that's not happening, then that's another sign that you're being canceled. Well, where would you put um, uh, former editorial page editor uh, James Bennett, who was forced to resign? Um, some, some employees in the New York Times were very uncomfortable with him uh, running an op-ed by uh, Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton. Would, would this fall into what you're talking about? Well, people debate that one, and sometimes it's hard to tell, but I would say yes. Yeah, my view of that was that basically James Bennett was deplatformed uh, because he was doing his job. He ran a very conservative op-ed piece. It was very controversial. That's what he had understood his job to be. Some people at the newspaper thought that that was a terrible piece of work, and they said they felt it made them unsafe. And uh, he wound up being forced to resign. Now, they came up with some other reasons. They always do in a cancel campaign. They'll always look for things that you did wrong that they can cite, but they were pretty trivial. You know, they said, well, he didn't read the thing before when it, well, if, if he'd read the article, that wouldn't have helped, right? Because that would have made it even worse. He read it and he approved it. And the people who did this, I think, made it quite clear that the real, he ran an article, no place in the newspaper. Well, that's for the publisher to decide, of course. And if, if, He's, he's within his rights to have uh, have an editorial page editor he agrees with. But I think in that case, we had a whole bunch of people gang up and say, this can't happen here. We can't be publishing stuff like this. Uh, and where the guy who published it wound up losing his job over it. Yeah, I think that's I think that's in the margins of canceling. Would have been different if the New York advised them. If we have to, let's think it through a bit more carefully. But we're not going to have anyone be punished for this. Hmm. Uh, in, 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 the, uh, in the perfect world, uh, we're going to make you king for the moment. In the perfect world, uh, given the stuff that you're writing about, how would that have been handled in the perfect world? Cotton writes inflammatory, what some people think is a inflammatory op-ed. How would you like to see that play itself out? Well, kind of what I just said, it, I thought it almost played out the right way. I remember when it first came up, I was telling my friends, well, watch this space, but this could end well. Because if what happens here is that the uh, New York Times publishes a very right-wing and somewhat inflammatory article by a U.S. senator, and a lot of people criticize that and say, "That's we should not have published that, we shouldn't have given this a platform, should have handled it differently, maybe had rebuttal views, whatever. Um, and then if the paper says, okay, we're going to learn from that, we're going to look into it, maybe make some revisions, and that, then, it's, then we're in the bounds of criticism because then it's, then it's a learning experience, right? You're trying to figure out where these boundaries are and you're having a conversation about that. And I said, this could end well. The very next day after I said that, James Bennett was forced to resign. 
lost his job and the deputy editor who worked for him was reassigned. And this is after the publisher had issued a statement initially saying that, um, you know, saying the right thing, saying, well, I, these are real concerns and we're going to learn from them. So I think it was the punitiveness that turned the corner on it. Uh, but, you know, it wasn't that far from being right. I think um, I think they, they could have handled it well and they made a bad wrong turn at the end. Uh, I want to just touch back, back, I think back in um, end of June, July, somewhere around there, you were part of a plethora of writers, intellectuals, and artists that, that signed an open letter in Harper's Magazine voicing concern for the forces of illiber- illiberalism that are gaining strength. Talk about that letter and why you felt strongly enough to add your name publicly to it. Well, this was a letter by writers and intellectuals, most of them far more distinguished than than I. Salman Rushdie, for example, is on that. And he is, we should talk about Rushdie. Yeah, well, I was going to bring him up. So he's you, the, uh, yeah, he's the original victim of canceling. Um, and in many ways, we should get into this because it's really interesting, but in many ways, his experience set the template, template for what's now going on. And so I was contacted by uh, a, a friend who's a writer for The Atlantic, George Packer. And I was independently quite concerned about what was happening. I had seen what had happened in the New York Times. I was watching what was happening in academia where, and, and um, in other other newspapers and other places. There was an incident at, um, for example, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art that happened at around the same time where a curator was essentially fired for something he said in a staff meeting that was well within the bounds of reasonable discourse. And I just began thinking, you know, we are getting to a place where we don't have First Amendment problems. It's not that the government is censoring people, but where we're getting a lot of people chilled from having important public conversations because they're worried that they will be ganged up on on social media and made so controversial that they will be forced out of their jobs or forced out of their profession um, or just systematically harassed. And that is not how you behave in a tolerant society, in an open society. So I thought that behavior, though legal, was a bad form of behavior, an intolerant form of behavior. And then right at the time I was thinking this, up pops this letter, and that's when I realized I am not alone. There are a lot of people who are sharing that concern. So for me, it was a no-brainer. I just signed on the dotted line. Uh, let's uh, since you brought him brought him up, and uh, we'll, we'll jump right to it. Let's let's talk about uh, Salman Rushdie, and I'll just add this piece. I, I'm sure those are f- who are familiar. I guess I think it was the late '80s, early '90s, uh, when there was a uh, what fatwa uh, death threat on his life uh, by the Ayatollah Khomeini. I could see someone saying to you. Uh, what is happening now? Um, no one's putting death threats on people. And, and so talk about Salman Rushdie and how that's similar and how it's different to today. The big difference is the important one that you named, which is he was threatened with death. But not just Salman Rushdie was threatened. It's important to remember. So the background for those who were too young to remember, February of 1989 there's this novel by Salman Rushdie. It's called The Satanic Verses. It's actually a magnificent novel, in my opinion. And it had been out for a few months, and it was not a big success at that point. But protests started arising, initially in Pakistan and then elsewhere, maybe initially in London. And in February, the ruler of Iran, Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, sees a protest on TV and issues a fatwa, a decree, saying it is the duty of every Muslim 
everywhere in the will, world to kill Salman Rushdie and anyone else associated with the publication of his book. That second clause is important. That's the secondary boycott. That says, not only that, but if you're even associated with this guy, you're a target too. Well, that led to Salman Rushdie having to live underground. He lost his marriage. His career went off track. You know, it's an awful thing for him. But several dozen people were killed in the aftermath of that, including, for example, the, the Japanese translator of the book. There was an assassination attempt that almost succeeded on this Swedish publisher. So the big difference is we're talking about death there. Well, with modern cancel campaigns, we're not talking about death, and that is just a huge difference, and we all recognize that. We are talking about, however, something like social death. We're talking about people at least trying to use the same tactics, this kind of swarming tactic that transcends international borders and goes not out only after the original target, but anyone associated with the target to try to make them social pariahs so that no one will publish them, no one will associate with them, no one will hire them. And if you've interviewed people who've been at the receiving end of a cancel campaign, and I've, I've interviewed a bunch of them for a book I'm working on, you know that this is a deeply traumatic experience. To suddenly have your friends turn their back, many will denounce you for fear of themselves being denounced. To suddenly know that your career is in jeopardy, that they're, that your job is being reconsidered, that you're being investigated. Um, this is a horrifying thing for ordinary people. Um, you could go talk to Nancy Rommelman about it, for example. She was a journalist who did a podcast questioning aspects of the Me Too campaign. Well, someone got a hold of that who was a former employee of her husband's business and started a campaign to cancel her husband's coffee roasting business. And um, two of his four cafes had to close. And he wound up selling the business and moving to New York. You know, why should an ordinary American have to lose his business because of something his wife said? that offends somebody else. But they were able to organize a whole campaign on media and regular media and social campaign to shut this guy down. Um, so that's a social version of what was done to Salman Rushdie. The actual penalty is not as bad as, ca as actual physical capital punishment, but the principle is the same, which is this idea is terrible, this person is terrible, they must be driven out of society by any means necessary. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Jonathan Rausch, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution located in Washington, D.C. Um, Jonathan, you, you mentioned um, that you're working on a book, and uh, so feel free to use this portion of the broadcast as a shameless plug for your book. Go right ahead. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, that's a softball question. <laughs> uh, well, in keeping my, with my practice of never giving a, a short answer to a short question. Uh, 19, I, was, I was so horrified by the Salman Rushdie affair in 1989 that I gave up my job and, and wrote a book which was eventually published under the title Kindly Inquisitors, The New Attacks on Free Thought. Now, it's still in print, go get it, free speech classic. But it's really not just about free speech, it's about the obligations of all of us if we care about freedom, peace, and knowledge to live in a world where we have lots of criticism and lots of ideas and lots of diversity of viewpoint and where sometimes we get offended and sometimes even deeply upset or hurt. And that there's a positive burden on us to, uh, to have thick skins 
So I wrote that in 1993, and then I went off and did other things like gay marriage, and then all of this stuff started. And I thought, well, it's it's time to do version 2.0 of that. So this is a book that's I think going to be called the the Constitution of Knowledge. If you Google Jonathan Rauch, R-A-U-C-H, Constitution of Knowledge, you'll find an article I wrote that summarizes it, or you can put it in the show notes if there are any. Mm-hmm. And this is about the system that we use, the operating system of reality, how we go about in a free, peaceful, um, and, um, and knowledgeable society, how we go about settling differences of agreement and turning those into knowledge, which is a very, very hard thing to do. You know, if you just let people argue with each other in an unstructured way, you don't get knowledge, you just get argument. You know, you get the internet, basically, you get Twitter. So it's about how we set up all these structures that allowed knowledge to happen and then how two big forces today are working to undermine that. One is chaos, and that's trolling and disinformation and um, the, um, I guess it's uh, the infodemic it's called, you know, all the conspiracy theories about the internet. The fact that it's, not the internet, about the pandemic, getting very hard to function in this very polluted information environment online. So that's problem one. Donald Trump is a part of that. He's running a disinformation campaign out of the White House, I believe. And then problem number two, a very different problem, is canceling. It's coercion. It's the development of a culture in some places in society, especially universities and, and social media, that basically punishes people for having incorrect views and tries to reduce the amount of intellectual diversity out there. And um, I'm going to say in the book that that these things are very different from each other. The people who want chaos are very different from the people who want conformity. But that they're both very negative if you care about an open society that's got freedom and, and knowledge and social peace. Now, sticking with the theme of books, um, you know, I, I think... Uh, in my view, one of the most subversive texts ever written in American literature, uh, and I mean that in the best possible light, uh, is Huckleberry Finn. Um, at the turn of the 20th century, that was one of the most banned books, I think, in my view, because Mark Twain gives a runaway slave agency. Um, in the 21st century, it is still one of the most banned books because, uh, because of Mark Twain's use of the N-word. And my question is, is there, in your view, a burden of, of what you define as a liberal forces to engage in, in some sort of inquiry? Or is it all just what you said earlier, that that's not even a burden? I don't like it, ergo, it's bad, ergo, all the things you just outlined um, in the subsequent behaviors. By, by is it a burden, you mean is is undergoing, like is being criticized or offended a burden, or is I mean, that what you're getting no, at? No, is the burden, for example, so sticking with, sticking with Huckleberry Finn, do I not have the burden to read Huckleberry Finn before I offer some sort of criticism, or is that not a burden for this culture, this cancel culture, this canceling that you're talking about? Oh, well, it's certainly a... It's certainly an obligation if you want to do meaningful criticism, and that's one of the things that makes canceling canceling. They don't want to do meaningful criticism. Um, I should have mentioned this earlier, but one of the hallmarks of the Rushdie campaign that's so characteristic of canceling is none of the people who thought Rushdie should be punished for reading the satan- for writing the satanic verses had read it, and they boasted about not reading it. They said, I don't have to walk through a sewer to know what filth is. 
And the same thing happens with canceling. It's very often the case that they'll go after the author or something and they'll say, I didn't read the thing. I know it's racist or whatever they're accusing. So what you're, if you're interested in canceling, then you're not reckoning with the ideas. You're not trying to read them and taking them seriously. You're trying to purify them out of society. And if you're trying to purify society, the last thing you want yourself to do or other people to do is actually have to encounter the ideas. So it's the opposite principle of actual criticism. As you, as you mentioned earlier, this is not a free speech issue per se because it's not that the government is somehow abridging the rights. But where would you put it in terms of, of, of our democratic traditions? Where, where, where should we put this notion of canceling as it's being uh, promoted? Well, there's, there's, a, there's a few places it goes. As I mentioned earlier, I put it in the broad category of propaganda. Propaganda is an effort to use media and the social environment not to find truth, but to manipulate that environment to advantage your own side. And propaganda can use the truth. It can be truthful. It can be false and malicious. It's usually a combination of the two, but the point is it doesn't really care about truth. It just wants to use these arguments and truth to achieve its goal. And I think canceling is from that world. So the broader question you raise, though, is, is a very pertinent one, which is, so we're not talking about a classic freedom of speech issue here. We're not talking about government censorship. So we live in a privileged time, right, Byron? I mean, it's my grandfather's lifetime. The United States government was seizing and burning copies of Ulysses, greatest English language novel of the 20th century. They had laws against it. They could do that then. They can't anymore. We're in the very fortunate world that we have an unprecedented level of freedom of speech in America, much more so than even when I was born in, in 1960. But freedom of speech, freedom of inquiry, as James Madison and John Adams and George Washington and, and Alexander Hamilton, all, pretty much all the founders said, these freedoms don't just depend on the letter of the law. They depend on public morality, the subject of your show. They depend on people having a spirit of toleration, a willingness to put up with people who are not like themselves, to put up with diverse views, um, to understand that you can't make society safe for yourself or make it the, exactly the way you want it every time. So having a tolerant society requires having a tolerant mindset. Um, John Stuart Mill said this in, in 1859 when he wrote On Liberty. He basically said, you know, if you have a tolerant society, no amount of legal censorship is going to make it unfree. But if you have an intolerant society, no amount of legal protection will keep it free. Uh, Jeff, on, on that note, following up, is there... Uh, in your view, a, a naivete associated with this behavior? I mean, for example, I'm not offering a prediction here, but if Donald Trump loses in November, then our problems would be solved. But I hear you suggesting this type of culture, once it takes hold, is really in, can be impervious to, to just changing events like an election. I, I wonder how you saw that. Does that make sense? Oh, I see what we call today canceling, the word is new, but the behavior isn't. You know, Socrates was canceled, right? Mm -hmm. He was executed for going around Athens and asking questions that people thought were, were impious. 
So the impulse here is age old. And what I tell people about this is the thing about freedom of speech, toleration, this is the idea that ideas which are heretical or seditious or bigoted or obnoxious or just plain wrong should not only be allowed, they should be positively protected. Well, there are two things about that idea. The first is it is the most intuitively ridiculous idea of all time. I mean, come on. You have to be crazy to believe that. But the second thing about this idea, the redeeming characteristic of is it also happens to be the single most successful social principle of all time. Our freedom is based on it. Our science is based on it. Our technology, all of the things that have made modern humanity so different from the 198,000 years that preceded us comes down to that crazy idea. So what I tell people is, you know, because this is the most counterintuitive social idea of all time, it will never not be attacked. It will never un not be threatened. You and I and your kids and your grandkids and their grandkids will have to get up every single morning for the rest of their lives explaining and defending the principle of free speech and toleration from scratch. But you know what? We just need to be cheerful about that because we're doing amazingly well all considered. So in the very long view, I just view this as the latest variation on an age-old theme and by no means the worst. This is nothing compared to the Inquisition um, or the great dictatorships and the propaganda empires and the gulags of the 20th century. We're lucky to have these problems and not those problems. But what I hear you saying, though, uh, for, and I'll just use the First Amendment as an example, what I hear you saying is, in this sort of paradoxical way, my adherence to the First Amendment really runs a parallel course with my willingness to support the, the vile speech that I may spend a lifetime in opposition. Well, you don't support the idea behind the speech. No, 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 no not supporting you, the speech, but supporting it, it being said. Yeah, that's right. That's what we call pluralism. And it's another of the great radical ideas of, of liberalism, which is the founding idea of America and, and modern Western democracies, which is that, you know, as you can be absolutely sure that you are right and that the other people are wrong. And in fact, you can be right and the other people can actually be wrong, but it's still to our benefit to have pluralism and diversity, especially pluralism and diversity of opinion. Because even if we, we're right and we know we're right, it's important to have our views tested and refined, but usually... There are truths out there that we're, not on, that, that we're not aware of, and there's something to be learned. So I think that when you encounter an idea that's obnoxious and hurtful and painful, the, the best attitude toward that is not, how do I make this idea go away? It's, is there something I could learn from this idea? The, it seems to me, listening to the, to the argument you put forth, that, that there's also... You talked earlier about not having the desire to, to, let's say, read satanic verses or read, as I referenced earlier, Huckleberry Finn. So, so ignorance becomes part of the culture that sort of masquerades as intellectual certainty. Um, and, and doesn't that pose untold harm on, on, a, on a democracy because you can't be a free and ignorant people, ultimately, so to speak? Yeah, I, I think that's right. If I'm understanding you correctly, people, you know, I'm, 
I'm homosexual. I've spent one of the reasons I stopped paying a lot of attention to free speech issues in the 90s and 2000s. It's not that they went away. It's that I, I went basically full time into the campaign for same sex marriage, which was a long, very, very uphill battle. We won that basically because of free speech, because we were able to make our case. And when we started in the early 90s, mid 90s, it was basically people thought it was the most ridiculous idea ever. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's important to encounter these bad ideas, if only because they give us platforms to, to uh, show, to demonstrate our better ideas. But, but even more important, I'd be interested if you agree with me on this. But I come at this as a member of, of three historically oppressed minorities. I'm a homosexual, atheistic Jew. On uh, most prior, prior Western civilizations, I'd be either suppressed or dead. And it really it breaks my heart, Byron, to see a lot of minority activists who could not be where they were to where they are today, but for free speech, to be turning against it, to be saying, you know, this it harms minorities to have to allow racists to be out there. So we have to stamp out all the bigots and all the bigotry. Uh, we can have zero toleration for that. Well, remember, there was a time when we were considered absolutely beyond the pale. If there had been hate speech laws in the books, if that had been constitutional in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, they would have been targeted at homosexual people because we were thought to be a danger to children and families and the security of the nation. So I think it's especially sad when minorities turn against this principle because our ultimate protection is our ability to speak our minds, to speak out, to defend ourselves, to defend our point of view. And the other thing that really troubles me about it is, you know, if you're a member of one of these minorities, women or blacks or gays, one of the things the majority did to us to keep us down is paint us as weak, fragile. You know, African-Americans were too childlike and, and women were too weak and gay people were, uh, were sissies. Um, and so, you know, we were characterized as, as being too fragile to thrive. And the opposite is true. And, and I just think it feels like it's so descending when people say because i'm a member of a minority i should be protected from hate speech i don't need protection i am perfectly capable of countering that and i welcome opportunities to do so uh how or can this because it's an ongoing phenomenon it just takes on different forms as you, as you articulated can it be curbed uh what what do you see happening going forward I think it's kind of an ongoing contest, an evolving and an evolution. There will, I, I do not predict there will ever be a day when advocates of, of toleration and, and free speech, open inquiry, true intellectual diversity with all its messiness can ever just say, okay, we're finished, all over. It's just not going to be that kind of thing. So I just think that we're going to see more decades and more centuries of morphing opposition, constantly shifting grounds to these principles, and morphing adaptation. I would just remind people that in my view, my side, I think the good guys at least are winning. We have, if you look at the world of science today, it's basically built on these principles we're discussing. And the scientific world is just far larger more productive, more efficient than any time in history. It's about, I think, it's about to come up with a 
vaccine in record time against a pandemic. And this is all because it's built on a society of open communication and, and exchange where new ideas, if they come along, if they're really good ideas, they can work their way from the edges to the middle. So in the long term, I'm, I'm optimistic. In the short term, I tell people what I said before. It's a fight. It's ongoing. We just need to be cheerful about that. Lastly, where, where do you put um, the university's sort of tug in this? Uh, many uh, have carved out, um, for lack of a better word, safe spaces. I know the University of Chicago s- sent all of its incoming freshmen a letter or an email that said there are no safe places because that's, a, a, that's not a place of, uh, of learning to, to create safe spaces. But what, 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 how do you see the university's culpability in, 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 in this argument that you're talking about? I'm worried about culture on, on universities, Byron. I think a lot of people are. There seems to be an expectation among many students now that a university should be emotionally safe, and by that they mean they should not have to counter ideas that make them uncomfortable. We also saw that among the staff at the New York Times, that an op-ed piece, which was controversial and conservative, made them quote-unquote unsafe. Well, criticism, challenging intellectual environments are unsafe. They just are. Um, and that's something we have to learn to, uh, to be robust against. So that culture has, uh, has had an important impact on universities. And there's also very vocal minorities in universities now, which will engage in canceling, which will engage in protests, deplatforming, silencing. And we know from lots of polling data, there's tons of evidence on this now, that students at universities feel chilled. They're subjects that they just don't want to discuss because they're afraid they'll get in trouble. It's not so much from a speech code or the administration, it's from their fellow students that they'll be canceled, basically. So universities are supposed to be the leading proponents of the open society and criticism exchange. I I think on many subject matters, they still are, but race, class, gender, sexuality, some other things, they're not. And that's a worrisome development. Jonathan Roush, Brookings Institute. I want to thank you for joining me today on uh, The Public Morality. Thank you for having me. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the public rally at their studios. The public rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at the public rally, I'm... Byron Williams.